And I realize uh, some of you may have groaned in your spirits when you came this morning and saw that the message is going to be from the book of Lamentations. Uh, But I hope you've already found it. It's right after Jeremiah and just before Ezekiel, Lamentations. It's a five-chapter book, very short, and as the title suggests, it's a sad and mournful and melancholy book. The prophet Jeremiah wrote Lamentations, and, and yet it's quite different in tone and character and style from the book that bears the prophet's name, because this is a collection of poetic works. Each chapter is a separate ode to sorrow. These are not psalms to be written to be sung in worship. These are elegies. Each chapter is a pure expression of sorrow, giving voice to the agony of profound loss and and the most pitiful kind of grief. You know what an elegy is. It's a, a dirge. It's a mournful poem. Elegies are usually written for the dead, but in this case, it's a lament over the Lord's judgment against Jerusalem and Judah. And, and each chapter is a separate piece. Each chapter stands alone as a unit. And there is a structure and a progression to the way these chapters are laid out. If you've turned to the book of Lamentations, uh, let's just briefly thumb through and survey all of the chapters before we get into our text. I, I want to point out some of the features of how this book is laid out. Again, five separate chapters, and each one is a a lamentation on its own. And you'll notice right away that chapter three is by far the longest of these five mournful songs. And if you look a little more closely, something else immediately stands out. Chapters one and two and four and five, each of the other four chapters, is precisely 22 verses long. Chapter three Our chapter is a longer work. It's positioned in the very middle of these five elegies, and it is 66 verses long, so it's exactly three times longer than each of the other four chapters. And the precision of those numbers reflects a deliberate structure. There are 22 letters in the Hebrew alphabet, Aleph, Bet, Gimel, Dalet, and He, and so on. And and the first four chapters of Lamentations are all written as acrostics in order on the Hebrew alphabet. Each verse starts with a different letter of the alphabet, and they are arranged in alphabetical order from Aleph to Tav. And chapter 3, our chapter, is written in triplets. So what you have there are three-verse segments, one for each letter. So verses 1, 2, and 3 start with Aleph. Verses 4, 5, and 6 start with Bet. Verses 7, 8, 9 start with Gimel and and so on. So this alphabetical structure is obviously deliberate and it is also a common poetic device in in Hebrew writing. In Psalm 119, that's the longest psalm in the Psalter and also the longest chapter in the entire Bible. That is also an alphabetical acrostic. The Masoretic text, the uh, more or less authoritative Jewish edition of the Old Testament, refers to Psalm 119 as the great alphabet. But there are also several other psalms that are laid out alphabetically, Psalms 25, 34, 37, 111, and 112, and also Psalm 145. All of these are acrostics on the alphabet. And so is Proverbs chapter 31, that section, famous passage on the virtuous woman, verses 10 through 31 of Proverbs 21. 31. That passage is 22 verses long, 
And each verse begins with a different letter, and the verses are arranged in precisely alphabetical order. So it describes the perfect woman from A to Z, or or more precisely, Aleph to Tav. And again, four of the five chapters in Lamentations follow that same alphabetical order. In chapter 3, you have three verses instead of just one devoted to each letter. But then chapter 5 departs from the alphabetical arrangement. And even though it retains that same 22-verse structure, it is not an acrostic on the alphabet. It's just a passionate, plaintive prayer written in poetic meter. People sometimes ask, what does this alphabetical framework signify? Well, some think it's a a mnemonic device. It's an aid to memorization. And of course, it works that way. It is easier to remember what comes next when you know that the text you're reciting follows the alphabet. But I think this is just mainly a a common poetic pattern in Hebrew poetry, which, you know, doesn't make much, if any at all, use of rhyming words. But in Hebrew poetry, it's the thoughts that rhyme. It's the thoughts that are structured. Hebrew poetry relies heavily on parallelisms, repeated ideas, so that the, the poet will say the same thing a second time but just use different words, like he was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities. Two statements saying exactly the same thing with exactly the same number of words. That, by the way, is Isaiah, 30, uh, Isaiah 53, verse 5. And that's an example of how prophecies were sometimes written like poetry. And Hebrew parallelism also sometimes uses uh, sort of the opposite approach, antonyms rather than synonyms, so that you have a a truth that's stated in one line, and then the converse idea is expressed in the next line like this. All of the horns of the wicked I will cut off, but the horns of the righteous will be raised up. That's Psalm 75, verse 10. So, So there you have a contrast that is stated with a matching sentence structure, but with opposite words. There are other kinds of parallelisms in the Old Testament wisdom literature, but you get the idea. It's the thoughts that rhyme, not the words. And also, Hebrew poetry sometimes makes use of rhythmic meter. If you could listen to someone reciting a poem in Hebrew, there will often be a distinct pulse to the words. Like typically, when the poet makes a parallelism, the first half of his couplet will have the same number of syllables as the second half. And so you can hear this throbbing like a drumbeat. And that aspect of the poetry is obviously almost always lost in translation. But it is an important feature here in the book of Lamentations because the prophet here purposely uses a kind of limping meter where the second couplet, the second half, is, is one beat shorter than the first half. So that in the Hebrew, if he makes a statement with three syllables, the second part of the parallelism will only use two syllables. And so it's a kind of verbal syncopation that stresses the mournful tone of this dirge. And it gives everything the texture and the cadence of a death march. And these are profoundly sorrowful songs. Lamentations was written in the historical context of an event that to this day remains a source of sorrow and sadness that reverberates constantly in Jewish worship 
Jewish literature, and Jewish tradition. These five chapters were written to commemorate the destruction of Jerusalem by Nebuchadnezzar and the deportation of the, of the whole nation of Judah into the Babylonian captivity. This was the most sweeping, disastrous defeat for the Jewish nation, really in all of recorded history. And from that time until now, no king has ever sat on David's throne in Jerusalem. The ancient city was utterly laid waste. It looked and felt like this marked the utter defeat of all of Israel's messianic hopes. Politically and spiritually and economically, really in every conceivable sense, things looked absolutely hopeless for the Jewish nation. And when Jeremiah wrote these elegies, there quite simply was no ray of hope on the horizon, no sign of possible redemption or relief. But this was, for the Hebrew people, the low point of Old Testament history. And it was the start of the most woeful, desperate, gloom-ridden generation in a history that, frankly, was already speckled with countless military disasters and political catastrophes, national backslidings, apostate rulers, divine judgments, public humiliations. And then this event seemed worse than all of the rest of those other calamities combined. And one thing magnified the guilt of the nation and intensified their anguish, and it was this. They knew very well that Jeremiah had been warning of the judgment to come for more than 45 years. The prophet's warnings had not been subtle or ambiguous. And in fact, the entire book of Jeremiah is filled with very precise predictions about everything that ultimately did come to pass. Jeremiah 25, verse 11, for example. The whole land will be a waste place and an object of horror, and these nations will serve the king of Babylon 70 years. Very precise prophecy about the Babylonian captivity. And Jeremiah had preached these warnings for more than four decades, but literally no one took him seriously enough to repent. And in fact, they drove him into exile. They called him a conspiracy theorist and an extremist and an alarmist and a merchant of doom or whatever. And his life was constantly in danger because the people not only refused to hear Jeremiah's prophecies, they drummed up absolute hatred and hostility against him. And furthermore, although this judgment began to come slowly and in stages, in effect giving the people of Judah, more space to repent, they ignored it. And the Babylonians, you know, began to deport people from Jerusalem a full decade before they actually demolished the city. So there were signs of impending judgment everywhere, and still the people steadfastly refused to listen. And again, Jeremiah's warnings came with absolute clarity. You can read them for yourself in the book that bears his name. He was a prophet who spoke the word of God without nuance. His credentials as a prophet were impeccable. The people of Judah had absolutely no rational reason to doubt him. But even when his prophecies of judgment began to be fulfilled, the cultural elites only tried all that much harder to shut him up. I used to wonder at the hard-heartedness of the people of Jerusalem, but frankly, I think many of today's evangelicals are cut precisely from the same cloth. In our culture, 
Christian conviction is in a serious state of rapid decline. Moral values based on Scripture are being overturned, and, and wickedness is being normalized, so that utter godlessness is now a dominant force in mainstream American society. Biblical faith is under direct assault at every level of our government. Christianity is mocked in the media, and the truth, uh, the truth and the moral standards of, of Scripture are rejected throughout the academic realm. The world, of course, has always been hostile to Christ, but never in my lifetime have we seen it as overtly and militantly opposed to truth as it is right now. And, and this, by the way, is actually a worldwide phenomenon. It's not just here in America. You know that pastors in Canada were jailed two years ago because they persisted in preaching to their gathered flocks when the government was saying, don't do it. And in fact, a child molester was released from the same jail where one of those pastors was held because authorities were afraid the child molester might be exposed to the COVID virus. But the pastor was not only denied bail, he was brought to the courtroom in chains, very much like the Apostle Paul in the New Testament. But here's the worst part. While all of that was happening, some of the loudest critics of those pastors came from within the church. It gave me a new understanding of the situation Paul describes in Philippians 1.17, where he says certain believers in his generation, while he was in prison, were proclaiming Christ, he said, out of selfish ambition rather than from pure motives because they wanted to cause him even more affliction in his chains. I used to read that and think, how could that happen? But it has happened in our culture in our lifetime. There are evangelical leaders to this day who stubbornly insist that it's inappropriate to refer to the harsh treatment of those Canadian pastors at the hands of government officials as persecution. They seem to think that church leaders should just shut up and passively follow the drift of secular culture. Well, that is the same kind of response Jeremiah got until the year 586 BC when the Chaldeans finally absolutely laid waste to Jerusalem and destroyed every remnant of civilization in, in Judah. They captured Zedekiah, who was the last in the Davidic line of Old Testament kings. Jeremiah 39, verses 6 and 7 says, Nebuchadnezzar slaughtered the sons of Zedekiah before his eyes at Riblah. The king of Babylon also slaughtered all the nobles of Judah. He then blinded Zedekiah's eyes and bound him in fetters of bronze to bring him to Babylon. That, that's a huge event in the Old Testament. And in fact, it's also recorded in 2 Kings 25, which records that event this way. 2 Kings 25, verses 7 through 11. The king of Babylon blinded the eyes of Zedekiah and bound him with bronze fetters and brought him to Babylon. And he burned the house of Yahweh, the king's house and all the houses of Jerusalem. Even every great house he burned with fire. So all the military force of the Chaldeans who were with the captain of the guard tore down the walls around Jerusalem then all the rest of the people they took away into exile. So the Chaldeans not only destroyed the temple, they destroyed all the, all the large houses, all, everything in the city that was subject to that. And then the text goes on to say this about the destruction of the temple. The bronze pillars which were in the house of Yahweh and the stands and the bronze sea which were in the house of Yahweh, 
the Chaldeans shattered and carried the bronze to Babylon. They also took away the pots, the shovels, the snuffers, the spoons, and all the bronze vessels which were used to minister. The captain of the guard also took away the fire pans and the bowls, what was fine gold and what was fine silver. And in fact, they took so much uh, precious metal, everything that was made of precious metal, so much of it that Scripture says it was too much to weigh. Literally nothing was left of the glory that was once Jerusalem. You remember that when the Queen of Sheba came to see the city in Jerusalem in Solomon's time, she looked at Jerusalem and, and said, I, I didn't believe what I heard about this until my eyes saw it. And behold, she says, 1 Kings 10, verse 7, the half was not declared to me. You exceed in wisdom and prosperity the report which I heard. She was absolutely blown away by the glory of Jerusalem. But now, just a few generations later, the Babylonians left that city a pile of desolate ruins, absolutely devoid of any hint of its former grandeur. And you get a feel for the national mood in Psalm 137, which, again, is a psalm that relates to this same event in history. And the psalm goes like this, By the rivers of Babylon, there we sat and also wept when we remembered Zion. Upon the willows in the midst of it, we hung our lyres, for there our captors asked us about the words of a song, and our tormentors asked joyfully, saying, Sing for us one of the songs of Zion. How can we sing a song of Yahweh in a foreign land? So there wasn't a Hebrew in the world who felt like singing at that point, But it was precisely at that point, immediately after the destruction of Jerusalem, that Jeremiah wrote these five sorrowful songs. Jeremiah, of course, is known as the weeping prophet. The prophetic book that bears his name is full of tender sorrow about the coming judgment. And the book of Jeremiah looks forward with this sense of profound grief at a judgment that was coming The book of Lamentations then looks back in despair at the fact that the judgment had now come and the people of God were left with no obvious signs of hope or deliverance. And yet, Jeremiah's gentle compassion is just as evident here as it was when he was trying to warn the people that this was coming. And I'll be honest with you, if I were in Jeremiah's predicament at that point, I think I would have been strongly tempted to write a scathing I told you so with a caustic tone and the cadence of an angry rebuke. My attitudes aren't fully always sanctified, I confess. But Jeremiah here identifies with the agony and the desperation of his people. This book is filled with first-person pronouns, we, us, 38 times in the English translations, and I or me, 57 times. And when he uses the third person, they, it's normally a reference to the enemies of Judah. So he sets himself with the people of God apart from their enemies and takes care not to set himself apart from the suffering Hebrews, even though their suffering is a direct consequence of their refusal to heed the many years of tearful, passionate warnings he had given them. And yet there's nothing accusatory or scolding anywhere in this book. When he mentions the nation's sin, he includes himself. And it comes out as a confession, not a condemnation. Instead of an angry indictment, he pens these sorrowful obituaries for the city of Jerusalem and the Hebrew nation. And that's what this book is about. So now, 
look at the layout of these five chapters. There's a distinct progression in the subject matter. It builds to an emotional crescendo in the middle, punctuated by a small hint of comfort and hope, and then it immediately becomes a lament again and ends with a desperate prayer. And chapter 1, look there with me. We'll thumb through this really quickly. Chapter 1 is all about the profound and grievous mourning that now dominates the region in and around Zion. Verse 1, how lonely sits the city. Verse 2, she weeps bitterly. Verse 3, Judah has gone into exile because of affliction and because of great slavery. She has found no rest. All her pursuers have overtaken her. Verse 4, even the roads of Zion are in mourning. All her gates are desolate, and she herself is bitter. Verse 6, all her majesty has gone out from the daughters of Zion, and so on. And everything seems absolutely hopeless. And the chapter ends on this note, verse 17, Zion stretches out her hands, but there is no one to comfort her. Verse 22, my groans are great, and my heart is faint. Everything about this is desolate and and disconsolate and and pessimistic. Chapter 2 shifts the focus then from the despondency of the people to the anger of the Lord. And it's a palpable fury that he describes. Verse 1, how the Lord has covered the daughter of Zion with a cloud in his anger. Verse 2, the Lord has swallowed up. He has not spared all the inhabitants, all the habitations of, of Jacob. Verse 3, hot anger. Verse 4, fury poured out like fire. Verse 5, the Lord has become an enemy. All the way down to verse 22, which ends then with this. There was no one who escaped or survived in the day of Yahweh's anger. Those whom I gave birth to and reared, my enemy consumed them. I always think all of chapter 2 really reads like an extended commentary on Hebrews 10.31. It is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of of the living God. And then you have the long chapter, chapter 3. And this is where I want to focus. We're going to zero in on three verses down in the second half of the chapter. But first, here's a short survey of the whole chapter, chapter 3. By the way, I'm glad this is the, the longest chapter because it is the one chapter that gives us this little island of relief in the middle of a sea of desperation. And although it starts and ends with the theme and the flavor of desperate lamentation. The central theme here, and literally geographically in the middle of this chapter, the theme is the Lord's mercy. Jeremiah manages to find a little glimmer of hope in this dungeon of darkness. And what I think is significant is where he looks to find that hope. He finds it in truth that he knows about God. In other words, he looks to doctrine, and specifically theology proper, the doctrine of God, the truth he knows about God. This is not something he feels. It's not anything he can literally see or apprehend with his senses. It's not a revelation of some new truth. It's not a voice from God that calls out to him in the darkness. God still feels to Jeremiah as remote and as silent as he did in those first two chapters. And in fact, the chapter opens with Jeremiah making precisely that confession. He feels cut off from the Lord. Look at the beginning of the chapter, Lamentations 3. I am the man who has seen affliction because of the rod of his wrath. He has driven me and made me walk in darkness and not in light. 
Surely against me he has turned his hand repeatedly all the day. He has caused my flesh and my skin to waste away. He has broken my bones. He has besieged and encompassed me with gall and hardship. Dark places he has made me inhabit like those who have long been dead. He has walled me in so that I cannot go out. He has made my chain heavy. Even when I cry out and call for help, he shuts out my prayer. And he goes on, and even at one point he describes the Almighty this way. He is to me like a bear lying in wait, like a lion in secret places, meaning, you know, a lion who's crouched in hiding, waiting to attack. That's what God felt like to him. Verse 12, he bent his bow and set me as a target for the arrow. He made the, quivers, he made the arrows of his quiver to enter my inward parts. Verses 15 through 17, he has saturated me with bitterness. He has sated me with wormwood. He has broken my teeth with gravel. He has made me cower in the dust. My soul has been rejected from peace. I have forgotten goodness. In other words, he's saying, I've forgotten what happiness is. This is sheer agony. But then, in verse 21, the curtain of darkness opens just a little bit to reveal that one little ray of hope. And Jeremiah turns to what he knows about theology proper, the doctrine of God, and reminds his own soul of the one truth he can cling to when the rest of the universe seems like it's filled with nothing but darkness and despair. And and these, by the way, are the best-known verses in the book of Lamentations. More than one of our favorite hymns are based on this familiar text. We sang one of them this morning, great is thy faithfulness. Verses 22 and 23, the loving kindnesses of Yahweh indeed never cease, for his compassions never fail. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. So Jeremiah's theology informs him that in spite of everything he is currently suffering, he knows that the Lord is good and that his loving kindness endures forever. By the way, that's a repeated theme in Scripture. God's loving kindness endures forever. That same phrase appears in the Old Testament 42 times, and 26 of those times are in Psalm 136 alone, where that phrase is used in every single verse of that psalm. His loving kindness endures forever. Psalm 103 verse 9 says essentially the same thing, but in different words. He will not always contend with us, and he will not keep his anger forever. Jeremiah echoes that same idea in verses 31 and 32. For the Lord will not reject forever, for if he causes grief, then he will have compassion according to his abundant loving kindness. And so the prophet is reminding him, (coughs) sorry, the prophet is reminding himself that God's love, not God's wrath, but his love is what defines his relationship with his people. And although God may discipline us, he does it for our benefit. Look at verse 33. For he does not afflict from his heart or grieve the sons of men. Now, you have to be careful how you read that. The idea here is not that God is emotionally conflicted. This is not suggesting that God has lost his temper as if, you know, he he didn't really mean to subject the people of Judah to judgment, but he kind of flew off the handle. That's not the idea at all. It's blasphemous to think of God as being driven by passions you know, veering wildly from wrath to pity, just being angry or or being kind 
but always in response to what we do. That is not how God is. We believe in the impassibility of God. In other words, God does not have mood swings. He isn't moved by passion. His anger and his compassion are not anything at all like human emotions where they fluctuate. But all of his affections are fixed and immutable, just the same as any other aspect of God's character. He doesn't change. He doesn't shift erratically between fierce anger and loving kindness. He doesn't change his mind, and he doesn't actually change his mood. From our perspective, we may experience and see his displeasure sometimes more than we see his mercy, especially when we sin. But God is always the same. He doesn't change. Numbers 23, 19, God is not a man that he should lie or the son of man that he should change his mind. And in fact, his unchangeableness is the very reason we can always find hope in his mercy. Has he said and will he not do it? Or has he spoken and will he not fulfill it? God's promised forgiveness and mercy are as sure and reliable as they are because he doesn't ever go back on his word. 2 Timothy 2.13, even if we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. He doesn't have changes of heart. He doesn't have temper tantrums and mood swings. And the prophet is making that very point here. Verse 33 in the New American Standard Bible says, he does not afflict willingly or grieve the sons of men. And that, frankly, is a bad translation of that verse. God does sometimes grieve the sons of men, And he doesn't do anything unwillingly. The Hebrew expression there, if you translate it, literally means from the heart. It means he does not afflict from his heart. And that's how you have it in the Legacy Standard Bible. And I'm glad they corrected this because Jeremiah is saying here that the Lord does not subject his people to discipline or suffering in a capricious way as if some surge of passion or some sudden whim has moved his heart or changed the way he feels. And and the prophet goes on in the next few verses to recite some of the immutable principles of divine justice, reminding himself, again, with some doctrinal or theological principles, that God is always and immutably just and righteous and holy, and above all, he's good. And that brings us to the passage that I want to concentrate on, verses 37 through 39. This is not the most familiar section of Lamentations, but I love this text. Uh, Jeremiah writes out here three questions, and each one of them points us to some principle of theology proper. Each one of his questions has an answer that ought to be self-evident to anyone who truly understands the biblical doctrine of God. You take everything God has revealed about himself... And the answers to these three questions are absolutely crystal clear. The prophet himself is not asking these questions because he doesn't know the answers. He states these questions because he's reminding himself of some vital truth about God that he does already know. And so these questions serve as a reminder of a hope that every authentic believer can cling to, no matter how dark the dungeon you may find yourself in. So here's the passage, just three questions. Who is there that speaks and it happens unless the Lord has commanded it? Is it not from the mouth of the Most High that both calamities and good go forth? 
Why should any living person or any man complain because of his sins? Now, by the way, remember that this chapter is an alphabetical acrostic. Those three verses are the triad. They go, they go together. They're the triad that begins with the letter Mem, the 13th letter of the Hebrew alphabet. I don't think there's any particular significance in that, uh, except that, to say that these three verses are purposely arranged to stand together as a unit. So let's think through these three questions one at a time. Number one, who is there who speaks and it happens unless the Lord has ordained it? Now, bear in mind what Jeremiah is doing here. He is answering his own despair with principles of biblical doctrine. These are facts about God that he knows are true, even though they might not seem true or feel true under the present circumstances. And this whole chapter is the most intensely personal portion of Lamentations. The other chapters are dominated by plural pronouns like we and us. But in this chapter, starting with the very first verse, he begins to use first-person singular pronouns almost exclusively, I and me. I am the man who has seen affliction because of the, he has driven me and made me walk in darkness and in light. And it continues like that. Chapters 1 and 2 and chapters 4 and 5 express the grief of an entire nation. And they are written to instruct some pretty hard-hearted people. But chapter 3 is just Jeremiah preaching to himself, reminding and instructing himself with doctrine that he knows to be true. And it turns out that Jeremiah is a thoroughgoing Calvinist. Because the first question he asks is a reminder about the absolute sovereignty of God, whose command was ever fulfilled unless the Lord decreed it. And the answer, obviously, is that unless Yahweh builds the house, they labor in vain who build it. Unless Yahweh watches the city, the watchman keeps awake in vain. That's Psalm 127. And also Isaiah 46, verses 9 through 11, where you have God himself speaking. He says, I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is no one like me, saying, my counsel will be established and I will accomplish all my good pleasure. Truly I have spoken. Truly I will bring it to pass. I have formed it. Surely I will do it. Which is to say, no one can thwart the will of God. You can make all the plans you want, but... If God doesn't permit a thing, it isn't going to happen. And that's also the point of Psalm 33. Let all the earth fear Yahweh. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of him. For he spoke and it was. He commanded and it stood. Yahweh nullifies the counsel of the nations. He frustrates the thoughts of the peoples. The counsel of Yahweh stands forever. The thoughts of his heart from generation to generation. Which again is to say... Nothing ever happens that God did not plan for and ordain. And furthermore, no matter how bleak and ugly and evil everything around us might seem to be, God is still able to make all things work together for good for those who love him. He has a good purpose in whatever comes to pass, and his purposes will not be derailed or frustrated by the evil things men do. In the words of Romans 9.19, who can resist his will? And the answer is no one. And so this first question 
calls for an unqualified affirmation of the absolute sovereignty of God. Although it seems like things have gone badly, God has not given up his providential control over all of his creation. And even though his, in this case, the Lord's chief prophet describes himself as perplexed and punished and pummeled by the wrath of God, the prophet himself knows enough sound theology to remind himself that God hasn't lost control. Nebuchadnezzar and the Chaldeans meant all of this for evil, but we can be certain that God ordained it for good because his purposes are always good. We sang about that this morning in that song. What my God ordains is always right. Scripture says, 1 John 1, 5, God is light and in him there is no darkness at all. Psalm 5, 4, you are not a God who delights in wickedness. Evil does not sojourn with you. Psalm 145, verse 17, Yahweh is righteous in all his ways and holy in all his works. And so the goodness of God, the perfect goodness of God is, is confirmed all the way through Scripture. James 1.13, let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God because God cannot be tempted by evil and he himself does not tempt anyone. James goes on to say that God is the giver of every good and perfect gift and in him there is no variation or shifting shadow. In fact, here was Jesus' summary of the character of God, Matthew 5, 48. Your heavenly Father is perfect. So he's good. We don't have to fear that, or, and we shouldn't lose sight of it. Psalm 145 says, Great is Yahweh, and highly to be praised, and his greatness is unsearchable. The people of God shall pour forth the memory of his abundant goodness. So we know that no one can bring anything to pass unless God has ordained it. And in fact, the LSB says, unless God has commanded it. And that is a literal translation of the Hebrew text. But this is not talking about God's commandments to us, telling us what we should do. The commandment here, obviously people do disobey the Lord's law. But this verse is talking about the Lord's eternal decree. This is his plan and purpose for the ages. And the command in this text is not a command regarding what you and I should do. This is a mandate regarding, regarding what God himself will accomplish. And everything is right on track, despite whatever evil fallen creatures might, might do. They may think they're defeating the purpose of God, but that is not the case because nothing can happen unless God ordains it. That's the point of this verse. And in in Jeremiah's time, just like today, whenever the subject of God's sovereignty comes up, the question immediately arises in all of our minds. Let's be honest about it. Well, why then is there evil? God is not the author of evil, right? If he's both perfectly good and truly sovereign over everything that comes to pass, why do bad things happen? And why, in particular, do bad things happen to God's people? Why do sound and solid Christians get sick and die in a pandemic at roughly the same rate as anybody else? And more specifically, why would a faithful prophet like Jeremiah have to start this lament with a statement like, I am the man who has seen affliction because of the rod of God's wrath? Why Jeremiah? Why is he suffering along with everybody else? How come he's not exempt? How is this fair? And so Jeremiah asks this second question, verse 38. Is it not from the mouth of the Most High that everything comes, both calamity and blessing? 
And again, this demands a clear answer that affirms and acknowledges the sovereignty of God. God is sovereign not only when good things happen. God is still in control even when bad things happen. And now, I I need to clarify something here. Jeremiah is not raising a question about the ontology of evil. He's not asking the source of evil's existence. It may be a bit misleading if you read the King James Version, because verse 38 reads this way, Out of the mouth of the Most High proceed both evil and good. And the ESV is only slightly better. It says, is it not from the mouth of the Most High that good and bad come? And uh, the New American Standard makes a slight improvement on that. It says, is it not from the mouth of the Most High that both good and ill go forth? Which still might seem to a careless reader like this is saying God himself spoke evil into existence. And we know that's not the case. In the first place, to quote James 1.13 again, God cannot be tempted by evil, and he himself does not tempt anyone. God doesn't bring evil into existence. He is not the author of confusion, Scripture says. And if you think that through, if God's not the author of confusion, he cannot possibly be the creator of evil. It's a mistake even to think in those terms, because evil is not a created thing. Evil is the destruction of what God made that was perfectly good. We know that from Scripture because after he created everything, after creation was complete and God was prepared to rest, Genesis 1.31 says God saw all that he had made and behold, it was very good. So evil can't possibly be something that God created because evil isn't even a created thing. It is the marring of a perfect creation. Now, sometimes, every now and then, I'll run into a hyper-Calvinist who wants to quote Isaiah 45, verse 7 from the King James Version, where it says, this is God speaking, he says, I form the light and create darkness, I make peace and create evil. That's the King James Version. Again, this has been corrected by most modern translations and also the, especially the Legacy Standard Bible, which says, a very little trans, literal translation of that verse says he produces peace and creates calamity. And that's the idea. God uses calamity to, to discipline people and to punish sinners. He brings those things into being. This verse is, again, not raising the question of how evil was brought into existence in the first place. So what does it mean? Well, again, the Legacy Standard Bible makes it perfectly clear. It says this, Is it not from the mouth of the Most High that both calamities and good go forth? Again, the prophet here is making a contrast between blessing and calamity. Good fortune versus adversity. And I also really like the poetic sound of the New King James Version on this, where it says, Is it not from the mouth of the Most High that woe and well-being both come? So what it's saying and what Jeremiah is acknowledging here is that God dispenses blessing and he also dispenses adversity and in both cases he does that with perfect righteousness as a perfect judge. When calamity befalls, the people of God can be absolutely certain that the devil didn't catch God off guard and slip some diabolical purpose past the notice of God's all-seeing eye. The devil can't even afflict Job unless God grants him freedom to do it. 
Satan can't sift Peter like wheat without the express knowledge and authorization of God. And 1 Corinthians 10.13 says, God is faithful who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you're able. Which means that whenever we suffer affliction, we can be absolutely certain that God has a good and profitable purpose in subjecting us to those things. That may not make the heartache or, or misery of our misfortunes feel any less painful, but it does give us an anchor of hope to cling for, cling to. It provides real comfort in the, in the midst of our agony. Spurgeon said it like this. He said, how greatly this ought to comfort you who are sorely tried. Every twig of the rod of correction has been made by God, and every stroke of it is counted by him. There is not a drop more gall in your cup than the Lord has ordained. He has weighed in the scales of the sanctuary every ingredient of your medicine and mixed it all with his infallible skill so that it may produce the cure of all your ills. Should not this make you rejoice in the Lord? Now, some people hate the idea that God is sovereign because it raises questions that, frankly, they're too lazy to work through an answer. And invariably, you hear people claim that you know more about the sovereignty of God. I don't want to need to hear that. There's no practical benefit. There's no real-world application to that doctrine. It's just theoretically theoretical stuff. But that's not the case. Right here is the main practical benefit that we derive from the doctrine of divine sovereignty. This is our guarantee that good will come for, from every trial that we go through, every fiery dart from the devil that goes through us, and every conceivable calamity that ever might fall on us, God will use it for our good. We naturally re- rejoice when, when, God, when things are going well and when truth seems to triumph over falsehood, then everybody says God is sovereign. It's easy and almost automatic. Gratitude fills our hearts when good things happen and when everything is going our way. Even the most militant Arminian will sometimes accidentally affirm that God is sovereign. But when things go badly, when you suffer, when you face the consequences of your own sin, and especially when it seems like you're suffering under the curse of sin for no obvious reason, nothing you've personally done wrong to deserve it, those are the times when it's truly helpful to know that God is in absolute control of every detail of everything that happens. And we may not always see what his purposes are, but we can unreservedly trust that whatever he is doing will be good. And specifically, it will be good for us. Again, that's the theme of the song we sang this morning, Whatever My God Ordains is Right. And Jeremiah knew that truth, of course. Divine sovereignty was a recurring theme in his prophecy. So it's no wonder that this doctrine also surfaces at the most crucial point of the book of Lamentations. But part of the question still remains unanswered. Namely, why Jeremiah of all people? Why would this faithful prophet be subjected to all the same griefs and hardships as those who had treated him so shabbily when he tried to warn them that this judgment was coming? And that's what prompts this third question, verse 39. Why should any living person complain when he's punished for his sins? The fact is, none of us ever suffers the full consequences or the due penalty of our sin. God's discipline is always administered with love and mercy. And no matter how bad it feels or how long it lasts, 
God's discipline is never the full measure of what our sins actually deserve. Look back at verse 22. It's that familiar text that we sometimes sing. And if you ever memorize this passage in the King James Version, verse 22 says, It is of the Lord's mercies that we are not consumed because his compassions fail not. The NIV has a a similar translation. Because of the Lord's great love, because of the Lord's great love, we are not consumed. Same thing, that is actually how this verse reads in the Masoretic text. Luther's German translation says it as well. Because of the Lord's mercy, we are not utterly consumed. And lots of commentators, Kyle and Dalich, prefer that translation. But the fact is, the earliest Hebrew manuscripts make verse 22 just a straight parallelism. So in our Legacy Standard Bible, it reflects that. It says, the loving kindnesses of Yahweh indeed never cease, for his compassions never fail. That's the LSV. And that that is how most of the modern English translations have it. And I don't know enough about Hebrew or textual criticism to make a dogmatic opinion on which translation is the best. But I will say this, either way it's translated, it's true. It's obviously true. Because it is absolutely a fact that if the Lord's mercies were not inexhaustible, we would have been doomed and destroyed and consigned to the eternal flames of hell long ago. And in fact, God himself says this to the Hebrew nation in Malachi 3, verse 6. I, Yahweh, do not change. Therefore, you, O sons of Jacob, are not consumed. And again, the biblical appeal there is to the immutability and impassibility of God. He is not subject to mood swings and temper tantrums. His faithfulness is seen in his absolute unchanging perfection. And one vital element of that is God's inexhaustible mercy, thankfully, because all of us have benefited from God's immeasurable, never-ending kindness. Verse 39 then asks, why should any living person or any man complain about the punishment of his sins? The fact that we are living at all is a benefit derived from the mercy of God because the wages of sin is death. So only a living person would ever, you know, even make, think to make such a complaint because the wicked dead know they have no plea before God. All they are left with is an eternal sense of their own guilt and endless regret for squandered opportunities and shame for whatever misguided sense of pride caused them to think that they deserved any favor from a perfectly holy God. And the redeemed dead are going to spend eternity thanking God and praising him for his great mercy, love, and kindness. And until you see the trials of this life from that perspective, which is God's perspective, you'll never fully grasp these truths. Jeremiah himself asks these three questions of himself in order to to remind himself what his own dilemma looks like from God's perspective, from the heavenly perspective. Perspective And notice this, the anguish Jeremiah felt didn't necessarily diminish, and the, the sense of national defeat that came with Israel's captivity did not go away. And in fact, the Babylonian captivity lasted 70 more years, which is literally a lifetime. But while the world around him continued to unravel, at least Jeremiah knew that he was standing on solid ground. And as we learn from James 4, verse 6, God gives greater grace, and you can be certain he gave greater grace to Jeremiah because he is opposed to the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. And notice that what follows our text 
is a call to prayer, verses 40 and 41. And then verses 42 and through 66, through the end of the chapter, it's also a prayer that ends this chapter. Now, back to the structure of the whole book. Chapter 1 ended with three verses of prayer. Chapter 2 ends with three verses of prayer. Our chapter ends with 25 verses of prayer. This is the longest prayer in the book of Lamentations, even though that closing chapter is entirely devoted to prayer. This is the longest of his prayers. And remember, it's personal. Chapter 1 is all about the nation's despondency. Chapter 2 is about the Lord's anger. Chapter 3 starts out like it's going to be about the prophet's afflictions, but it's actually about the Lord's mercy. And chapter 4, then, is about the punishment of sin. It's a confession that God is never unjust when he permits us to suffer. Uh, And, in fact, chapter 4 is the only chapter of any of these that doesn't end with a prayer. And then chapter 5 is entirely given over to prayer. Specifically, it's a plea for God's mercy. And chapter 5 is, remember, the only chapter that's not an alphabetical acrostic. It ends on a forlorn note. Cause us to return to you, O Yahweh, that we may be returned. Renew our days as of old, even if you have utterly rejected us and are exceedingly angry with us. And so the entire book has just this one little ray of hope in the very middle. And apart from that, there's no sense of triumph or deliverance anywhere in it which, of course, is the nature of a lamentation. And let me say this. It's legitimate for Christians to grieve. I know we like to stress that there's an element of celebration and rejoicing in a memorial service for believers who die, but it's also appropriate to mourn. Jesus wept at Lazarus's tomb, even though he knew he was about to raise him from the dead. It's fitting to grieve and to cry with inexpressible sorrow when someone dies or whenever, like in this case, we suffer under the curse of sin's effects. But the prophet Jeremiah reminds us here that even in the most profound outpouring of earthly woe, our grief is not hopeless. We grieve, but not like those who have no hope. For believers, there is always hope in the midst of our sorrow And by hope, I mean what Scripture means by that word. It's an earnest expectation of eternal glory. It's a a faith that hangs on the promise of that glory. That's what awaits those who trust Christ as Lord and Savior. Remember Romans 8.18, the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. That is what all the events of history are leading to the revealing of the sons of God, the culmination of all blessings in the glory of heaven for all eternity. And I know someone might ask, how can you have that hope if it's true that the wages of sin is death? If what we really deserve is worse than all the sufferings of this world combined, what hope is there for sinners? And the answer is, that's why Christ came. He lived a sinless life, and then he bore the sins of people while he suffered death on the cross and the full outpouring of divine wrath against sin fell on him. And in exchange, he offers eternal life to all who turn from their sins and lay hold of him by faith. He rose from the dead to prove that the atonement was complete. And in that, my friends, we have so much more than the bare glimmer of hope that Jeremiah wrote about in the Old Testament. We have the full revelation of the way of salvation. If you've never turned from sin and trusted Christ, 
there frankly is no other real permanent satisfying answer to the melancholy or despair that you sense when you suffer the pains of sin's consequences. And if that's where you are today, I invite you, I urge you to come to our prayer room after the service this morning and speak to the people there who will show you the way to turn to Christ in faith. If you are a believer, and if you're wondering why God allows you to suffer the woe and the anguish of sin's curse, and sometimes he seems to permit the distress and discouragement to go on for a prolonged time. Remember, Israel's captivity lasted 70 years, and most of us haven't suffered that long. But if you're a believer who is struggling, I trust you will find hope, if not comfort, in the knowledge that God is sovereign, He is in charge even when it seems like your circumstances are spinning out of control. And he carefully measures out your trials with generous doses of his inexhaustible mercy. And in the end, he himself is your portion and your promise. And when you reach eternal glory with Christ, I promise you will rejoice at the way he saw you through and gave you the deliverance you were craving. Let's pray. Father, we do confess with the people of Judah that we have transgressed and rebelled. We can't protest that we don't deserve panic and pitfall, devastation and destruction. And so we pray, as they did, cause us to return to you, O Yahweh, that we may be returned. Renew our days as of old, and may we live in your blessing as you give us grace to follow Christ. We ask in his name. Amen.